Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Now we're going to get into our, our message, and, uh, and so we're going through the, uh, uh, through the book of Revelation. This is week three of our series, started two weeks ago. And uh, you may be a visitor here today, and you're wondering, what does the book of Revelation have to do with Christmas? And it has a lot to do with Christmas, uh, because it's all about Jesus. Um, but one of the things I wanted to say to start off this message is, you know, Christmas is such an important time of year that we remember what God did, that he actually took on flesh and humbled himself and was born as a human baby. It's one of the most astonishing events in all of human history, and we're going to celebrate it, I really believe, into all of eternity. I don't think we'll ever forget it. I think in all of eternity, we're going to celebrate, year after year, we're going to celebrate the fact that God would humble himself and be born as a baby. That's amazing. But one of the things I want to say, and one of the things that, that Revelation really speaks to, and that we're going to see in today's passage, that we have to be careful that, that we don't mistake is, I feel like a lot of Christians, when we remember the manger, and we remember Jesus being born as a baby, it's almost like we forget that he's not a baby anymore. He's, he, so when we remember it, there's a difference between remembering an event and being grateful for something someone did, but then forgetting that he's not still in the manger. He's not a cute little baby anymore. And uh, an analogy I was thinking of this week, any of you parents who have, you know, kids who are somewhat grown, they're not babies anymore, isn't it true that as parents, we love to look back at pictures, right? And we look back at pictures when our kids were babies, and oh, weren't they so cute? They were so cute. And we forget all the terrible nights and the, and the horrible things that happened. And, uh, but we just remember the good parts, which is good. I think that, that's the way God made our brains. And, and uh, we look back, we look at our pictures. Oh, they're so cute. They're so cute. They're so cute. And we remember when they were babies. But isn't it true that we don't keep treating them like babies? Isn't that true? Some of you aren't, aren't sure. Isn't that true? <laughs> I hope you're not still treating your 15-year-old like a baby, wiping his bum-bum at the potty and getting him dressed in his PJs at night, okay? No, you like to look back at the pictures and remember that he was cute, but you don't keep treating him as if he's a baby because he's not a baby anymore. And Revelation has a lot to say to us about Jesus. It is important that we remember and never forget what God did, you know, just over 2,000 years ago. When he came to earth and was born as a baby, we will never forget what an amazing event. But Revelation reminds us that he is not a baby anymore. He's also not a broken man dying on a cross. That's another thing we remember and will remember forever and ever as an event that happened in the past. But he isn't that anymore. And so I want to read to you. We're going to get through a big chunk of scripture today. We're going to finish the rest of chapter 1 and get a chunk of chapter 2 done today. Uh, as we're moving through the book of Revelation. But I'm going to read you here verses 9 through 18 in, in Revelation chapter 1. And as we are thankful and grateful for Jesus being born in a manger, we're going to get a picture here of how Jesus is today. And it says this in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me, a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. 
The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. I think of Niagara Falls. Any of you have ever been to Niagara Falls? That was like what his voice was like, okay? He's not a cute little baby in a manger anymore. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Let's pray to this Jesus, and then we'll work our way through this passage. Lord Jesus, I really pray that this Christmas and this weekend and this message, that by your Holy Spirit, you will stir our hearts to an increased passion and zeal and fire for you. That's the most important thing that this message could do. Open up our hearts to receive more of who you are. In your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This is a snapshot here at the end of Revelation chapter 1 of how Jesus is today. And we're going to, I want to look at this snapshot for a little bit and then we're going to move into chapter 2 because who Jesus is today has a lot to do with what he wants to say to us. But just before we look more deeply into this picture, I, I do want to say one thing. I want to make sure that we don't make a caricature, that we don't make a cartoon of Jesus, okay? That we don't oversimplify him. This snapshot in Revelation is just that. It's a snapshot, okay? So, and it's an important snapshot, and we're going to look at it today. It's important we understand this about Jesus, but we have to always remember that a snapshot in time does not give you the whole picture. So, and the reason I say that I think it's really important is we have to understand that Jesus isn't always so stern and overpowering that you just fall over. Um, there is, he is that, and he's worthy of that. But in heaven, we're going to find him, there, there's going to be times when we just laugh with him, where we hug, where we, you know, there's going to be many, there's many sides to Jesus. This is just one side. It's an important side. It's one of the last, you know, snapshots he leaves of himself. But just like any human being, if you took a snapshot of me at any given moment in time, you took a snapshot of me at home at some random uh, maybe not too random, we want to be careful with that, but, but you take a snapshot of me at home and you know, maybe you catch me being silly with the kids. Well, that would capture one side of me. There's a side of me with my kids that is silly. And with this tie, okay, there's a silly side, right? But that's not everything there is to me. If you took a snapshot of me at a different time, you might catch me that one time every nine or ten years when I'm upset. And, uh, and then you'd see another side of me, right? But that's so... So there is the different times. So no one snapshot captures everything. There's a lot more to Jesus than just what we're reading here in Revelation 1. It's really important that we realize that. And we're going to even see some of those other sides in this passage, but it's important that we realize this passage is a snapshot. Now, having said that, though, it's a really important snapshot because it's one of the last ones Jesus leaves with us, and it's in the Word of God. It's his inspired snapshot. It's one that he wanted to leave us with. And it certainly goes against the grain of so much of what many modern Christians, how we view Jesus today, which is that he's very weak and meek and those sorts of things. And, uh, all, and what we see here is a very different picture of Jesus, and this needs to be our picture of Jesus because it is Jesus. And that is, that's really important for us. And so I, w there's so much in this passage. We could literally, I could spend a whole series of messages just going through the second half of chapter 1, and we could just go you know, phrase by phrase, not even sentence by sentence, but we could go punctuation mark to punctuation mark. There's so much description here. 
And all of the description, as I've been talking about the last couple of weeks, all of the descriptions are steeped in the Old Testament. There are so many Old Testament references in these passages, it's crazy. I'm just going to look at three here at the beginning of this message, and then we're going to move into chapter two, because I really believe that Jesus has something specific he wants to say to our church this Christmas season. And it comes out of who he is. So we're going we're gonna to skip over. We're not going to capture every little bit and detail and gem of what's in here. But this description of Jesus is not only powerful, it's who he is, but it's also steeped in the Old Testament. So let's look at who Jesus is. He's not a baby in the manger anymore. He's not a broken man on a cross. This is who he is. His face shining like the sun. And the first thing we read in verse 10 is, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That's Sunday, by the way. That's what they called Sunday there in the early church. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So again, John does not hear a meek, soft voice. He's standing there on a Sunday. He's worshiping Jesus. He's on his own. He's in exile. And he's away from the churches. He wished he could be with them. But he's, as he's praying, he hears a voice like a trumpet, like thunder shaking behind him. Okay? And you say, well, how do you know the part about the thunder? Well, the reason I know the part about the thunder is because like everything else, line by line, in this description of Jesus, this is all rooted heavily in the God of the Old Testament. And there was another time, Moses, when he wrote of the experience that they had meeting Yahweh on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. The, the description is very similar. Let's go back there for just a moment. Exodus 19, verses 16 to 20. On the morning of the third day, so the Israelites have come out of Egypt. God has led them out of Egypt, they've, they've, and he's led them through the wilderness, and he's led them to Mount Sinai. And he said, oh, I want to meet with the people. Can you imagine meeting God? And Moses has told the nation of people, he said, in three days... Three days, we're going to meet God. Get ready. Can you imagine that? In three days, we're going to meet God. Get ready. And so they're camped here at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And on the third day, this is what happens. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings. By the way, you're going to see throughout the book of Revelation, whenever John sees visions of the throne room, it's always filled with thunders and lightnings. Why? It's the same God. Same God as in the Old Testament. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud, what? Trumpet blast. So that all the people in the camp tremble. Can you imagine the God of the universe? He comes down to Mount Sinai and there you are. You've been waiting three days and there's thunders and lightnings and everything shakes and his voice is like a loud trump, trumpet blast. The people are all shaking in their tents. And then we read this, verse 17, then Moses brought the people out of the camp. So it's not enough for them just to sit in their tents. Moses said, no, no, we're gonna, you're going to come out with me now, and we're going to meet God. Can you imagine you're already trembling in your tent? And Moses says, no, 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 you can't stay in there. We're going to go meet God. And you come out of your tents now, and the whole nation, they move now to the base of the mountain. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, just filling the plain around the base of the mountain. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, louder, Moses spoke. And I often wonder there, what did he say? They're all trembling, thunders and lightnings, everything's shaking. God himself is on the top of this mountain with thunders and lightnings. And it says, Moses spoke. What did he say? <laughs> did he say, hi, <laughs> we're here. Did he say, I don't, well, it just interests me, but he spoke, but God answered him. Look how God answered him, and God answered him in thunder. And Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. Now, what's interesting is that's the Old Testament, and now here is John in Revelation 1, and he hears behind him a voice like a trumpet. 
John is having a similar experience to Moses because he's meeting the same God. That is really important. And we've talked about that already a couple of times in this series here in Revelation 1. It is really important to John that we understand that Jesus is not a different God from the God in the Old Testament. Lots and lots of Christians today are embarrassed of the Old Testament. And they're embarrassed of the God in the Old Testament. They think he's mean and harsh and oriented towards justice and holiness and works. But Jesus came along because that wasn't really working. And he's more gracious and forgiving and loving. And he is all of those things. Absolutely, amen. But so is the God of the Old Testament. Because they are the same God. Jesus isn't embarrassed. And the New Testament writers aren't embarrassed of the Old Testament God. They are continually passionate to draw for us together these two that Jesus and Yahweh are the same God. The God who came down on Mount Sinai is Jesus in the flesh. And now he comes and he talks to John. And so we continue now with the description in Revelation verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Now, remember, I'm not going to go there. We're not going to do the whole thing again this week because I, I just wanted to show you three things before we move to Revelation 2. But remember last week we looked at Daniel chapter 7. We took some time to look at Daniel 7 because Daniel 7 is a hugely influential uh, foundational passage for the book of Revelation. The Daniel 7, the stuff that Daniel sees in Daniel 7 is, is right throughout referenced in the book of Revelation. And in Daniel 7, uh, Daniel has, a, has an experience similar to what John's having in Revelation. He's taken up to the throne room and he sees a vision of God in his throne room. And remember what we saw last week in Daniel 7. You can look it up again this week, but he sees the, the, this vision and he calls God this incredible name. He calls him the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days sits on his throne. And he describes this throne of fire in the Ancient of Days. And then he describes, remember last week we took some time and he describes this son of man figure who comes on the clouds to the ancient of days and is given a kingdom that lasts forever. And we saw how very clearly, not just in Revelation, but actually all over in the New Testament, but, but especially in Revelation, John is very uh, concerned to help us see that that son of man figure that's going to have a kingdom that lasts forever and ever in Daniel 7 is Jesus. Jesus is that son of man, and that son of man is Jesus. But now I want you to see something else in Daniel 7. In another parallel here with Revelation chapter 1, let's go back to Daniel 7, just one verse, verse 9. It says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. I want you to notice how similar that description is to Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. John looks around, and what does he see? Jesus. His hair is white like wool, like snow. Why is that? Because Jesus is the Ancient of Days. You say, oh, wait a minute. Daniel 7, you just showed us last week, Jesus is the Son of Man. In the Ancient of Days vision, Jesus is the Son of Man. Now you're saying here in Revelation 1, he's also being described as the Ancient of Days. And the answer is yes. That's the Trinity. We're, right smack, we're running right smack into the Trinity again. Somehow, Jesus is both the Son of Man figure and he's the Ancient of Days. They are the same. This is the Trinity. Somehow, 
the three are one. If you go too far down this path and make them two separate, you don't have the Trinity anymore. And if you go too far down a path and make them one, you don't have the Trinity anymore. Somehow they are three and they are one. Jesus is somehow both that Son of Man figure and he is the Ancient of Days who comes down on Mount Sinai. He is equally that. He is Yahweh. And yet somehow separate enough that they give different greetings at the beginning of Revelation 1. It's beyond our comprehension because God is beyond our comprehension. But John is very clear here in Revelation that Jesus is that God of the Old Testament. He is one and the same with Yahweh. Well, let's look now at the effect that this has on John. Verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Can you imagine turning around? And seeing someone who has all the power. I mean, you think of how big our star is, the sun. And you're looking at the one who created it. The one who has the power with two fingers, he could just snuff it out. All those thousands and thousands and thousands of degrees Celsius of nuclear fusion reaction, burning ball of gas. He can just snuff it out with two fingers. He turns around and sees him whose face shines like the sun in full strength. And what does he do? I fell at his feet as though dead. He passes out. It's too much. Overwhelmed he falls over. It's too much. Now this is also important because a lot of people in Revelation will always, uh, they'll really focus in on the symbols. And there's no question there's symbols in this passage. There's lots of symbols in Revelation, but people often make the mistake of focusing so much on the symbols, they forget that the symbols are pointing to something real. John's having a real experience here. You don't faint just from looking at a bunch of symbols. You don't look around and, oh, there's a bunch of symbols and now, boom, you fall over. He's really seeing Jesus. His face shining like the sun. It's powerful. The symbols, there is symbolism there. I mean, a sword coming out of his mouth. Clearly, there's symbology there, absolutely. But the symbols are pointing to something very real and physical. Just because it's symbolic in Revelation doesn't mean it's real, not real. It's very important for us to grasp as well. And so he falls over as though dead. But look at what Jesus does next. And this is, the ama- this is what's so amazing. And we're going to love Jesus and we're going to explore him for all of eternity. He encompasses extremes. On the one hand, his face is shining like the sun. He's the God of the universe. He's Yahweh. He's the Ancient of Days. He came down on Mount Sinai in thunders and lightnings. And on the other hand, when John falls over and faints, I want you to look at this. Uh, he, he reaches over, but he laid his right hand on me saying, he's gentle. He reaches his right hand. So here's the one who made the universe, all of that. Power, earthquake-shaking power. And yet he reaches over to John, he cares about him, and he puts his hand gently on him and says, fear not. Can you imagine having the creator of the universe sitting beside you with his face shining like that? His voice sounds like Niagara Falls, and then he says, fear not. So on the one hand, your knees are knocking because of him. And on the other hand, nobody can touch me right now. Isn't that true? It's this combination, this fear and security at the same time. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. We could look at each of those phrases, but we're not going to today. I just want to look at at one there. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. Now, that's just an epic thing to say, even if it has no connection to the Old Testament. That's just epic. I am the first and the last. I mean, only God can say that. 
He created everything. He's eternal. He has no beginning or end. I'm the first and the last. The book ends of everything that exists. It's amazing. That's an epic title. But thing you have to understand here is it's not just Jesus being epic. He is again. John is, and again, this isn't John just making it up. He's actually, Jesus actually said this and he's recording it. But this is Jesus very clearly claiming to be someone. And only one person in the universe, only one being in the universe could claim to be the first and the last without it being blasphemous. And that is Yahweh in the Old Testament. Isaiah 44, verse 6 says this. Thus says the Lord, okay? Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord. Now, when again, whenever you see in the Old Testament, Lord in capitals, in Hebrew, it's not the word Lord. It's, it's actually God's divine name, Yahweh. That's whenever you see in the Old Testament, Lord with capital. So thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Only Yahweh says that. Now in Revelation chapter 1, who says it? Jesus says it. Why? Jesus is Yahweh. Now I want you to notice here that they are not two separate gods. What does Yahweh say, say there? And he could never lie. What does he say at the end? He says, besides me, there is no God. God. There are not two gods. There are not three gods. There are not eight gods. There is one God. Besides me, there is no God. So when Jesus says, I am the first and I am the last in Revelation, he's saying, I am Yahweh. They're not two separate gods. This is the Trinity. They are one, yet somehow they are three. But they most certainly are one. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the God of the Old Testament. And again, this has so many implications for how we as Christians read the Bible. It has so many implications for how we read the New Testament because so many Christians have divided the Old Testament from the New Testament. Over here is when God cared about holiness and then that didn't really work out. So Jesus, who's quite different from that God, he's a lot nicer and meeker and more humble and all sort of stuff. He came along and he's doing it the forgiveness grace way. Absolutely wrong. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He's not embarrassed of anything that happened in the Old Testament because he is that God. He never changed. So the grace and forgiveness that are in Jesus in the New Testament are the same grace and forgiveness that are in Yahweh in the Old Testament and the same passion and zeal for the commandments and moral holiness in the Old Testament that Yahweh has is the same passion for the commandments and holiness in the New Testament that Jesus has. How could he have changed? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so actually what we find, and we're going to find that now in these letters, is that just like in the Old Testament, Jesus cares about our behavior and how we live. And we're going to see that now in just a moment. But let's continue reading here. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. And what are these lampstands? Well, as we've talked about before, is for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we have this picture of Jesus. He's in amongst these churches. The churches are these lampstands, and when John sees him, he's in amongst these lampstands. The whole point is he's very close. In the Old Testament, God wanted to live. He was not content to live in heaven while Israel lived in the wilderness. He said, I want to live among my people. So what did he do? He told him, build a tabernacle. I'm going to live right in the middle of you. That's the God in the Old Testament. Now we get to the New Testament, and where does John see Jesus? Is he far away from the churches? No, he's right in the middle. 
He's right in the middle, and not he's not in the middle. What I love here, too, is he's not in the middle of one lampstand, one nebulous sort of universal church. Absolutely not. What is the universal church except uh, uh, a, you know, a compilation of a bunch of real local assemblies? So Jesus isn't just walking around this nebulous universal church. Seven churches, seven specific churches in Asia, he's walking among them. Why? He... Just like God in the Old Testament wanted to live in the midst of his people in the tabernacle, a real people, he wants to live in the midst of real people today. He is in amongst the churches. He is passionate about churches. This is what he cares about. This is where he lives. This is where he wants to be close to. And because of that, just like God in the Old Testament had very strong opinions, passionate opinions about how the Israelites lived, Jesus has very strong opinions about churches today. And so he gives messages now to these seven specific churches in Asia, seven specific local churches, and uh, continues to speak to our local churches today through these messages. But let's go to this first one there, the church, uh, the Ephesian church. And this Jesus who's among the lampstands, who's passionate about them, who is Yahweh, who is the God who was on Mount Sinai, who wrote the Ten Commandments, says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works. I know your works. Now we just have to stop here. This is Jesus. By the way, he's going to talk about works in all seven of his letters to the churches. And the reason I just want to stop and pause there for a moment is because church after church after church in the West today has this message that your works don't matter. Jesus says differently. Now, some of you might be sitting there, you might be going, oh, Chris, I don't like your theology here. I just want you to recognize here, I haven't preached any theology here. I'm just reading you Jesus' message to the churches. And if our theology doesn't match up with what Jesus says, then our theology has a problem. Jesus says, I know your works. He's watching the works. Now, there's a truth here. I know, I know where a lot of this comes from. A lot of churches, when they're preaching works, what they're, what they're talking about is they're saying, you can't work up your salvation. Well, amen, hallelujah, that is true. Aren't you glad? I mean, aren't you glad Jesus died on the cross for us? Because none of us could earn our salvation. If we had to earn it, oh man, would that be stressful and we'd all miss the boat. All of us, by a long, long shot. None of us can be good enough to earn our salvation. Impossible. It is true that salvation is a free gift. It is something that we are given. It's not something we can earn. But where Christians have gone wrong is they've taken a truth that is 100% true and they have applied it to your life as a Christian. They've said, now, works don't matter to Jesus. All you got to think about is Jesus loves you. It's interesting to me, Jesus doesn't say that to the churches. What is Jesus' message to the church? Not as what our preacher is preaching. What is Jesus' message to the church? Does he say to these seven churches, and we're going to go through all the letters? Not today. You're going, some of you are checking your watches. Holy smokes. <laughs> In all seven letters, Jesus never says, I want you just to focus on my love and don't think about your actions. He never says that once. Why? Because that's not his message. Salvation is a free gift. But Jesus actually, just like God did in the Old Testament, actually loves you too much not to have high expectations of what he wants from you. You know, they've done secular research now, 
scientists have done research, lots and lots of research on kids and parenting and teaching and all that sort of stuff. One of the interesting things they've found is they've looked at different children in different situations. Some children grow up in, in families where the parents are very authoritarian. It's all about rules, 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 and there's no grace and there's no forgiveness. And children in those kinds of situations grow up to have all kinds of problems. But there's another extreme, is a lot of kids nowadays also grow up in homes where there are no rules. And it's all about grace, 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 and forgiveness, but there's no rules, and there's no limits, and there's no expectations. And the research shows that those kids also have a lot of problems. What they find for the best outcomes for children is children who are in a home that has a mix where the parents really love them, and there's tons of grace, infinite amounts of grace and forgiveness, and the parents have high expectations of their kids. They also find the same thing in the classroom. And those of you parents with kids in schools, don't you know this? Our favorite teachers for our kids are the ones who love them too much to let them slouch and get away with, not, with, with doing nothing. Isn't that true? We love teachers that love our kids and believe in them and push them to do better. How would Jesus be any less good of a father or a teacher than, than what is needed here in this world? Isn't that true? He will forgive you every day you get up and his mercies are new every morning. He does not condemn you. But at the same time, he loves you far too much to just let you slouch through this tiny, short little life you have and then go into eternity without reward. He absolutely loves you. But he says, I know your works. Now, what kind of works is he talking about here? See, a lot of Christians have this nebulous feeling of guilt and condemnation. Oh my. Jesus cares about my works. I'm not spiritual enough. He must not love me. Because we have this idea that when he talks about works, he's talking about spiritual things like how much you read your Bible every day, uh, how much you pray, how much you fast, all that sort of stuff. Now, first of all, those are, those are called spiritual disciplines, and they are really important. I really believe in them. And the reason we really believe in them here at Southland and we encourage people to do them and we practice them ourselves as leaders is because it's those connecting with Jesus moments and quieting yourself that prepares you to be the kind of person who produces the works Jesus actually likes, but those aren't the works. Nowhere in the Bible does Jesus tell us how much we should read our Bible every day. He doesn't say that. We should meditate on his word. We need it. But Jesus nowhere in Scripture tells us, read your Bible this much every day. He doesn't. So those cannot be the kind of works he's talking about here. I know your works. What are the kinds of works Jesus is talking about here that he expects when he looks at a church and when he looks at an individual life, he says, I'm expecting to see something. I'll tell you what some of those works are. We can take them from his teachings. We could do a survey of the Gospels and we could find lots of things. Like it certainly means taking care of the poor. It certainly means being generous in missions and discipleship. It certainly means taking care of children and orphans. It certainly means all of those things. Those are things he told us to do and let your light shine. Amen? And Jesus says here, I know your works. See, there's a lot of Christians that have this idea. What is church? Uh, well, church is where I go. So what is church? Well, my church is such and such a church, and it's, here's the address. I can show you the building. And for a lot of Christians, church is not I just go to church. I go to church. I go, I sing a few songs, someone else speaks to me and talks to me about God, which is fine. I'm glad you're all here. Please don't all leave right now. Not against that. But if you think that's the extent of what church is, Jesus says, I know your works. 
Church is not something you just go to. It's something you're a part of. It's something that produces something that you do. It's like a verb. I know your works. If you have been transformed by Jesus and are part of a local body that is filled with Jesus, there are certain works he's looking for that are evidence of that. So as I was praying about that this last week and meditating on this scripture, I, you, know, you can't help yourself, but I, I continually pray, Lord, I, I wonder what you would say to us. And no doubt he'd have a lot to say and a lot that we'd have to improve for sure. And a lot that I'd have to improve, no question. And I think he'd also have some encouragement. He does in almost all the letters to the seven churches. He's got encouragement. He's got rebuke. But I was thinking about, I was saying, Lord, what are, are there... What are the works you look at in our church? What are the works that show you're at work here? And things that have nothing to do with me, so much stuff started coming to my mind. I was thinking again, you know, three weeks ago, Alex Matala was here, and, and I was thinking of Joe and Jen Waldner and their team and those farmers and how, much, how many times they've flown out to Uganda and taken off, you know, time off of work and, and on their own expense and, and helping that farm get started. And, and your generous giving, we, the tractors we've sent out there and feeding 2,500 orphans, you know, every single day we've been doing for the last few years. And, and I thought that generosity and that sacrifice and that using of talents to, to do mission and to bless people in need. And I thought that, that's evidence. It's not, we don't have it all together, for sure not. But that's evidence. Those are the kinds of works Jesus is looking for. If they're not there, is it even a church? I know your works. In the case of the Ephesians, they're good on this side of things. I know your works. I was thinking on Wednesday night, I was in here dropping off a couple of our kids. On Wednesday nights here, this building is, is like a zoo. It's filled with hundreds of kids. Young kids in grounders, and then the middle school kids, and then all the high school kids and moms and dads who are leading them. But there's hundreds of kids here, here for discipleship on Wednesday evening. And I was thinking of all those leaders who come in here. You know, many of them, moms and dads and high school students, they've been in class all day. They've been at work all day. And when you get home, and it's December, and it's dark already at what, like 3 o'clock? The sun comes up at noon, it goes down at 3. <laughs> and you come home from a long day of whatever. You've been in school. You're tired. You've been at work. You're tired. What possesses those people to come here then? And these kids, when they're in middle school, they're not low energy. Okay, they're more to the that. If this is high energy and they're up here, what would possess a person to come here and serve and disciple young people when you're already tired and it's dark and cold outside? I'll tell you, Jesus is at work in somebody's life and there's a passion for the kingdom of God. See, that's a sacrifice. Jesus says, I know your works. Where Jesus is at work in a church, there will be works happening in that church. And where Jesus is at work in a life, there will be works happening in that life. Look at Matthew 10, 42, Jesus' own words. You don't think works matter? Look at this. Whoever gives one of those little ones even a cup of cold water. This is what Jesus is looking for. Whoever gives one of those little ones even a cup of cold water. That's a physical cup. How about all those people we got, we got leaders in our middle school ministry and our kids' ministry who have been leading the same group of kids for years. They just take them up as they grow, and they disciple them and disciple them, and they just move up with them through the various grades, and they commit for years to doing that. What about those people who give a cup of living water to children? How many nights of TV and how many 
nights of just sitting at home and relaxing and recovering from a day of work have they given up because they want to give a cup of living water to a child. And Jesus says, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus says, I know your works. He doesn't say, just, just, just feel my love every day. We should feel Jesus' love. We should seek to feel his love. But he doesn't say that's how you're supposed to live. He says, I know your works. That's not me speaking. That's Jesus. And we're going to see that phrase over and over again in these first couple of chapters of Revelation. I know your works. And we could go on and on and on. With this this last week. And all of this is stuff I haven't thought. This has nothing to do with me. That's what I love. Uh, this last week, we gave away our 56th car here at Southland. 56th. And some of you, you maybe not, didn't even know about that ministry, but we have lots of people in our church here, instead of selling their old vehicles when they're done with them, they'll donate them to the church. And another group of guys who love fixing cars and are good at it, they get together every week for a couple hours, and they pray together, and then they use their talents of fixing cars for Jesus. They fix these cars up until they're past all the safety and do everything. They do it all to serve. And then we give these cars away to single moms and very needy families in the church, and immigrant families, and even some of people who aren't connected to the church, but just in the community that we know about, and we give them cars, and they can't afford them. We've given away 56 now. I know your works. When Jesus is at work in a church, it will bubble over with works of love and service and mission. One last one that I'm going to tell for the rest of my life. I often think about this, but you know, last year I told it, but I'm going to tell it. This is one of those I'm just going to tell and tell and tell until I'm, until I'm retired. But last year, I remember talking to a, a woman in our church months before the Christmas offering. She said, I, I have nothing to give to Jesus. I want to give an offering. I want to. I just love it. I want to give an offering, but I have nothing to give. So she prayed about it. She said, Lord Jesus, I have nothing to give, but I want to give you an offering. So she prayed. Isn't that amazing? A lot of people would just be like, oh, sweet, I have nothing to give. I don't have to feel guilty. I want to give. He said, what do you love? What have I given you a talent in? She says, well, I love animals. She felt him saying to her, give that to me. So she bred her rabbits, had a bunch of babies, sold the rabbits, made a few hundred dollars, and then was so proud, came in here uh, in, in uh, December and gave me a check for a few hundred dollars for the church for the Christmas offering. She said, this is for Jesus. I mean, I know your works. Such as coming to church and listening to something. When you love Jesus, he is worthy of worship. Now we go back to Revelation chapter 2 there. I know your works. And the next word after works, he says, I know your works. And I got it underlined there. And I know your toil. I know your toil. There's sort of this idea that a lot of Christians have nowadays, and some of it is tied to like spiritual gifts. It's not bad to be into spiritual gifts. Love spiritual gifts. Paul talks about spiritual gifts in his epistles. Love it. But a lot of Christians now, they want to find their spiritual gift, which is great. Usually doesn't work, but it's great. Just do it. So you read books about your spiritual gift. You take tests of spiritual gift. You know what the best way to find out what your spiritual gift is? Serve. So anyway, but a lot of people now, they want to do spiritual gifts, but you know what some of the motivation, not all the motivation, but some of the motivation I've seen is because people want to do something that's easy. They want to do something that gives them personal fulfillment. So if I find what my gift is, I'm going to serve in my area of gifting, and that's when it's going to be easy and happy and nice and all that sort of stuff. I want you to notice here, 
Does being in God's will and serving with your gifts mean it's easy? Jesus says, I know your works and I know your toil. I know your works and I know your toil. Do the New Testament writers have a theology of personal fulfillment when it comes to serving? I think it's great when there's personal fulfillment. I think that's a great bonus. It's not that we shouldn't have any personal fulfillment. And I will never lead worship. There are some obvious spiritual gifting areas where you just can't serve. But did Paul have a, have a theology of personal fulfillment? Oh, you know what? Ever since I gave my life to Jesus and started serving in my area of giftedness, it's been so easy. I never have beatings. I never go without. I'm never hungry. It's never hard work. I never have sleepless nights. Is that what he wrote? Serving God was very hard. He said, I have had many sleepless nights. He says, daily I carry the stress and anxiety of the well-being of the churches. He had a theology. It wasn't about personal fulfillment. It was about Jesus is amazing. And that's the Jesus we see in Revelation 1. He's a Jesus who is worthy of actual service. Where it's sometimes hard work. And look what it says next. And your patient endurance. In other words, it's not just hey, I served God passionately one summer at camp there back five years ago or ten years ago when I was younger, and I'm just sort of, or I was passionate for Jesus. I kind of had a two-year stint where I was really passionate for him. You know what? Serving Jesus is more like a marathon than a sprint. Patient endurance. I know your works. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. Why all of these things? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus, that's why Revelation 1. He stands there, and he looks at John, his face shining like the sun. And John falls at his feet as a dead. You know what? He's actually worth sacrificing your life for. He's actually worth sacrificing for. Well, Jesus has commendation for the Ephesian church. The works and the toil and the endurance were there. They were doing that. They were a good church. They really were. But he's got one thing against them. And comes that next. I know you are patiently and I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They had the works, but they didn't have the love. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Their service had just become a duty, it had become robotic. So it was good. Jesus didn't tell him to stop that. I know your works. If, you're, if you really love me, there's going to be works. There's going to be toil. But it, had, it wasn't coming out of thanksgiving anymore. It wasn't coming out of adoration. You've lost the love you had at first. It says this in, in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works. There's that line again. Do the works. It's so opposite to what's getting preached in so many churches today. Do the works. You did it first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Um, Jesus says, actually, it's not acceptable for you just to serve me and not be passionate. Some of you might be sitting there, you might be going, oh, does he have to be that fussy? Like, it's not enough that I give him the service. I got to be, be passionate for him. It's not enough that I serve and do the right things. I actually have to passionately love him. Like, does he have to be so picky? Why does he demand both service and passion? 
And I think I only need to say one word by way of analogy, and I think it all makes sense immediately. And the word I'll say by way of analogy is this. Marriage. Marriage. Isn't it true that in a marriage, it requires more than just doing the right thing? Just going through the motions? Is that enough? Those are, any women in here, that's enough? I just want my husband to go through the motions. He doesn't need to be attracted to me. He doesn't need to have any passion. He doesn't need to romance me. Just be a nice guy. That's enough. Does anybody here, is that enough? Well, some of you might go, that would be an improvement over what I have. I'll, I'll settle for that. <laughs> is that enough in a marriage? It's not. I've seen lots of marriages over the years here at Southland. I've seen, uh, you know, there's you know, the really, really bad ones where they're fighting and yelling. But then there's other marriages where there's none of that. There's no fighting. There's no yelling. They get along, you know, they watch TV shows together and they have play cards together. That's what they, they, they're nice. They don't yell at each other. But there's no passion in it anymore. They're almost more like roommates. The, the intimacy is gone. The romance is gone. And sometimes those are the most painful marriages of all. When you talk to people and you pray with them, some of those, sometimes those are very painful. And the reason is because we know there's something missing. That's not what that relationship was made for. Now, of course... Any of you who's been married for longer than 24 hours knows that you're not always passionate, okay? You're not every moment of every day, oh, we're just so passionate for each other. You wouldn't get anything done. Not, you wouldn't be able to go to work, okay? You, that doesn't work. It's not every moment. There's many, many days in marriage where, many days in marriage where you just, you know what? You, at the end of the day, you didn't say anything bad to each other. Success, good. Go to bed, whoop, awesome. You made it, all right? But if that relationship isn't punctuated at regular intervals by pursuit, romance, taking time together, intimacy, if it's not punctuated by that, it actually starts to feel dead. The same is true of your relationship with Jesus. Yes, there's lots of days where you don't, if you don't, most days you're going to wake up weeping tears of joy for how much you love Jesus. I wish that's how I could wake up every morning. But that's not how it happens every single morning. There's lots of days where you just live and you're tired and you feel dry or you feel a little depressed or whatever it is. There's lots of days like that. But if your relationship with Jesus isn't punctuated by, by periods of passion where I'm seeking him and stuff, something is missing. And Jesus says, actually, it's unacceptable. It's actually an insult. He is too awesome for us to be apathetic. Did you know it's an insult to be apathetic? Can you imagine if Jesus, Yahweh himself, stood on this stage behind me and spoke, and I turned around and said, me? Can you imagine? Oh, I'd be afraid to, would you be afraid to do that? Can you imagine if Jesus stood there and I said, why isn't it enough that I'm just serving and doing the right things? Good enough. Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? He is worthy of much, much more than that. He is actually worthy of passion. Now, some of you are going, I don't know how to be passionate. That's what I love. Jesus isn't coming after you for emotions. He's saying, do the works. What were the things you did early in your relationship with Jesus when you first got your life turned around or those moments when you were passionate? What were the things you did? that fired up your passion for him? What were the risks you took? And that's what he's saying to this church at Ephesus. 
They, they, they were doing works, I, and he doesn't say what they were. It's not, it's not going to be the same for any church. It's like there's no marriage the same, there's no church the same. But early on in their relationship with Jesus, I don't know. Did they have some early morning prayer meetings where they just got together and just worshiped Jesus together? Did they take up some love offerings and just give extravagantly, you know, beyond, you know, what was comfortable? Um, did, I don't know. It could be a thousand different things. But there was, in their early years, out of their love for Jesus, they had done some stuff that they had stopped doing. Jesus said, go back and do the works you did at first. Stoke the fires of passion. I remember earlier in our marriage, you know, a couple years in, and uh, wanting, saying to God, we had saved up a bit of money. I've told the story before. I'm not going into detail here, but we would saved up money for a, a mortgage and a uh, down payment and I just said, Lord, I remember going to prayer with him one day and just saying, I just love you so much. I just want to give it. I want to give it away. And just that, there's something that happens when you give an extravagant gift to Jesus and you do it and it's ridiculous and it's painful, but you're soaring. There's days where you just soar. It's like, it's so scary and so wonderful and so I'm all in with Jesus. And then we wonder why 20 years later, 30 years later, I don't feel passion for Jesus anymore. It's because when's the last time you took a risk for him? When's the last time you made a sacrifice for him? When's the last time you got up, especially early, just because you needed extra time with him? The reason your heart has gone cold is because you have ceased to do the works you did at first. Jesus says, go back and do the works you did at first or I'll remove your lampstand from you. Well, let's finish with these two things as the worship team is coming up. Because Jesus is worth it, this Christmas season, I want us as a church to give Jesus the best gift we can give him this Christmas, and that is the gift of our passion. Just like the God in the Old Testament, just like God in the Old Testament wanted wholeheartedness, Jesus demands wholeheartedness. This Christmas, let's give Jesus the gift of our passion. And I've got two very practical things for you to think about. One is, at the prayer summit on New Year's Eve, that's in two weeks, on a Monday, 6 to 8, I'm going to be leading. We're going to spend a big chunk of the prayer summit, first of all, seeking God and worshiping him because he's worthy, and then we're going to ask God, we're going to spend time praying for more passion in 2019. And then secondly, let's take a moment and reflect, even as the worship team's coming up here, what gift can you give to Christmas this Jesus to show him your passion? Maybe time. Maybe you want to give them an extravagant gift. You know, we've got the Christmas offering, some of these various things. These are opportunities for us to love Jesus. Or maybe it's something else. It could be a thousand different things. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. And my prayer is that nobody will leave this building today without some practical thing they're going to do to show their love for Jesus this next week, this Christmas Holy Spirit, we want to give you the gift of our passion. Go back, Jesus says, and do the works you did at first. Some of us, Lord Jesus, have been playing it safe for so long. Our hearts have just gone dead. There's no risk left. There's no sacrifice. There's no pain as a result, we can't enjoy some of those periodic thrills of our passionate wholeheartedness for you. Give us each one idea this week 
Maybe we're going to get up earlier and spend extra time with you. Maybe we're going to make a sacrificial offering above and beyond what we were thinking. We're going to take a risk. So we want to show you how much we love you. Maybe there's a, there's a thousand other things you could be putting in our hearts right now. Thank you, Jesus, for your passionate love for us. We want to love you passionately in return. In your name we pray. Amen.